this podcast to me is, is like such an immediate reminder that while we're doing this alone in our apartment, there are a million other actors across the city of New York, across the country, across the world, that are locked up in their own little apartment doing the same thing. And we don't have to be alone in it. I'm Victoria Perot. And I'm Amanda Whiteley. And this is Coaching Shakespeare. Welcome to Coaching Shakespeare. I'm Victoria Perot. And I'm Amanda Whiteley. And this is actually the pilot episode for this podcast. But Amanda and I were just talking about, we haven't actually recorded this until eight full episodes in. And we're gonna talk a little bit about what the podcast is, what we hope to do with it, and a little bit about ourselves. And we realized we needed to live with it for a couple of months, talk to people, shape the episodes before we could even get to the place where we could articulate it very clearly. And I think we're there. Yeah. Yeah, and I, 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 it's been given time to grow with us, and I think we've grown so much even as artists. Like we're talking about, we'll be talking about our track, but, but myself, even just a few months ago when I started recording this, is in such a different place um, now. So I think having having the benefits of having lived through this recording process is so cool now to articulate this in retrospect. Yeah, I love that. A little bit of backwards and forwards. So let's mm-hmm. start by explaining to the listeners mm-hmm. what happens on this podcast very simply. What do we do, Amanda? Okay, so what we do on this podcast is at the very beginning, we introduce an exercise that we've learned somewhere in our training. And then we bring on a guest who does the episode with us and they, they do the exercise and we use that coaching session as a demonstration about just how to use this exercise, how to apply it in your own life, and then we talk about it. Yeah, so, so we actually do a live coaching on the air yes. where we'll be doing an exercise like the pointing exercise or direct translation. Mm-hmm. And we are hoping to provide a room, a space, mm-hmm. that anybody can come into so you can see actual actor process and a tool per episode. It's an active how-to. And I think what's really great is um, we were talking before about how this is in many ways a goal to demystify the actor's homework because I, as a director right now, I'm working with, with the actors on just like all of the contextual storytelling plot line stuff while we're in rehearsal. And then I'm saying things like, okay, well that's your homework and you can go home and do that. And we hear that term all the time as actors is like, oh, go, go do your homework. But what does that actually look like? And what does getting a coaching session look like? when it's just you in your room, when it's just you in your New York City apartment and you have this monologue that you have to memorize for an audition the next day. And that's for an actor at any stage of their career. Like no matter where you get, you're never going to avoid or, or, or going to get to skirt around going home and just like practicing your monologues in your apartment. I wish I as an actor had a tool like this. This is a term we keep throwing around is, is pocket coach. That, that coaching Shakespeare is like a pocket coach because we demonstrate how you might go about doing this work on your own when you don't have access to a space, when you don't have access to a coach, when you maybe want to do something while walking down the street with a monologue that you have. What can you do while you're on the subway on the way to, to, to prep something? What does that preparation look like and how can we alleviate your guesswork? I think that's the big thing as well because so often it's like, okay, well, where do I start with this? Like, where do I start with my homework? And these are just examples of things that you can do to approach a classical text, to, to 
get more ownership over it. I love that. And then from the teacher perspective, because mm -hmm. of course I'm a teacher, and we'll go into that when we talk a little bit, when we interview each other and we find out each other's background, how we know each other. But so many times I've been brought in to do workshops to help teachers create curriculum or uh, uh, figure out how to uh, help young actors approach classical text. Mm -hmm. Now, we use Shakespeare's text. And we were just talking about the idea that there are a lot of other writers out there. <laughs> you know, the Shakespeare worship does sort of zone everybody in on Shakespeare <laughs> when there are countless other writers, but yeah. the tools are the same. Mm -hmm. And the tools can be used for any writer, uh, whether classical or contemporary, it doesn't mm -hmm. matter. When my husband's an illustrator, he's a painter, when I describe some of the tools that we use, mm -hmm. he's able to transpose those into tools that he might use for his students for painting class. That's so cool. Yeah, I didn't I know meant, that. I meant to tell you that. We were talking about using Shakespeare as a launch pad. Like, like these are these are tools that can be used in so many different degrees. And I think there's there's some truth to the fact that like, why not start with stuff that is. Um, just by cultural standards more obscure at first glance that is actually a little bit harder to crack that has the connotation of being a classical text that that is harder to dissect like why not use those tools there first so that we when we are working on a television script when we are working on a pincher play when we are working on a surrealist drama we can we have the confidence of knowing that we could do it with shakespeare um and we can apply it to that and those of course pose so many of their own challenges as well that are totally different but why not start with Shakespeare and then uh, fan outward to all of the things it touches as well? Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. So, um, so for the actor, uh, these, are, these are just invaluable step-by-step -step episodes. Um, and for the teacher, you can actually shape an entire curriculum around these tools mm -hmm. because they're class lessons. Yeah. These are lessons that you and I have either done or gotten in classes, mm -hmm. done or gotten in rehearsals, yeah. so they can be applied in the classroom as well. So there are a lot of different ways to approach this podcast, whether you are an actor, a director, a mm -hmm. teacher, a scholar, someone who just wants to get closer to Shakespeare's text, mm -hmm. and importantly, We've been working with an illustrator lately who has no experience with Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. But she listened to some of the episodes, and the first thing that she <laughs> texted me after listening to the direct translation episode was, you really do this? <laughs> <laughs> you guys take it apart in this detail, to this mm. level? And the answer is yes, of course. Yeah. That's, that's what actors, directors, teachers, artists. Specificity yeah. is godliness. <laughs> exactly. So, so I think the podcast really works on so many different levels for any curious mind about approaching text. Yes. Talk a little bit more about what the experience is of listening to an episode. Mm -hmm. and, and before you do that, I, I just want to share one thing, too, in regard yeah. to why we did this. Mm -hmm. So, so many times I would be listening to an interview with, with a great actor, okay? Mm -hmm. And I'm remembering... One of my favorite interviews uh, that Terry Gross of Fresh Air did with Philip Seymour Hoffman. And she's pretty good about getting into it. Terry Gross is the first to admit that she, she's not an actor, of course, and she loves knowing about theater and how theater makers do what they do. But as a listener and a practitioner of the performing arts, sometimes I long for her to go a step or two deeper so that when we get to the how, 
-hmm. we get to hear how does Philip Seymour Hoffman do it, or in his case, did it. How does Philip Seymour Hoffman become Philip Seymour Hoffman? And that's yeah. like the question that we want to Yeah, what's, know. What, what did he do in his apartment quietly on his yes, own? exactly. And, and, and there's one more thing I want to share, and then we're going to go mm -hmm. to you again. When I was at Northwestern, a woman came in, an older woman. Now, very likely she was my age, mm -hmm. <laughs> that I am now. Okay, but, you know, I was a young person, and she mm -hmm. seemed, she was probably in her 50s. Mm -hmm. And she was doing a one-woman show where she played lots of Shakespeare's uh, heroines. Mm -hmm. And she ha had been a mom, and she now had created a one-woman show that she was taking on the road. Mm -hmm. and, out, and we watched it, and it was terrific. And afterwards, somebody said to her, how do you practice when, <laughs> when you're a busy mother? Yeah, and yeah. she said... That's always the question. Right, and she said, well, when I'm Queen Margaret, I do the dishes as if I am Queen Margaret. Mm -hmm. and I make the bed as if I am Queen Margaret. And I remember, even though I was at Northwestern in training as an actor, mm -hmm. that struck me as the first practical piece of advice mm -hmm. that I had gotten. From an expert. Yeah. yeah, that I thought, oh, I understand that. I'm going to go home today, because I think I was working on Lady Macbeth. Yeah. And I'm going to do Lady Macbeth doing the dishes. <laughs> right? I had a little apartment yeah. in Evanston, and that's what I did. And then, of course, that brought me to being Lady Macbeth when I was on my run, mm -hmm. running around, you know, the lake, etc. And and that's what the podcast does: is it, it, it gives you something incredibly tactile, yes. incredibly possible for approaching something utterly, seemingly impossible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and not tactile, you yeah. know. It, it, it's taking text and ideas, and and then what? Mm -hmm. It is exactly that. Oftentimes when when you get something and, and the muscle hasn't been worked, like the actor's muscle hasn't been in practice, the, the work feels like a big nebulous cloud of like, what's my first way in? And starting is always the hardest part for me. It's just, just starting or like creating an environment in which I can begin. And a practice that I've developed recently is before I go into a text or something, I'll just listen to Ian McKellen speaking some text, or I'll just watch Judy Dench, like doing doing a, a monologue, because then I'm reminded, like, oh, me the actor, I'm not in the woods alone. This is how the text sounds, and I think the exercises that we present are very much like that. You hear another actor doing the work, you hear something that you can physically do, and it's not that you go to your room and copy it, but it's like. Oh, I can do that thing that they were just doing. Like I can, I can go, I can press pause right now if I would want to, and go to my room and do it. And if I need a reference, then I can play it again. And if there's a part that I don't understand, like I can go back and review it. Yeah. It's there. It's there so that actors know not only should this work be started practically and, and can be started practically, but that you are not in it alone. This work can be really isolating. Like when you're doing self tapes and you're by yourself and you're like, you've zoomed in with your friend, it's, it's, it's easy to get disconnected from the community that brought us into acting for the first place. Yeah. And, and this, this podcast to me is, is like such an immediate reminder that while we're doing this alone in our apartment, there are a million other actors across the city of New York, across the country, across the world that are locked up in their own little apartment doing the same thing. And we don't have to be alone in it. And what's great about the podcast is like, 
you could turn us on at 2 a.m. if you want. Like, we're, we're the friend that's available for you if you just need an acting and acting inspiration or or just, like, to know that you are not in it alone. And there's yeah. a, always a way to start. Yes, yes. And, uh, again, from the teaching and directing perspective, and, of mm-hmm. course, right now you're directing Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. One of the nice things about it is you might see something that you think an actor needs. You might think to yourself, mm-hmm. they're not really crystal clear on exactly who they're talking about. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm just going to, you know, suggest the actor listens to the pointing exercise because yeah. that's the one that's going to, you know, crack open who's Lancaster and, and you know, all, all of the different characters yeah. uh, and the places and the locations. So as a teacher, as a director, there's so many things. It's, a, it's so wonderful to say to an actor, um, pop off in the corner and just do the whispering exercise. Yes. And you've got it. You've mm-hmm. got it now. That's an exercise. Yes. Since we recorded that episode, I have done that. And mm-hmm. I didn't know that when you did. Yeah. And, and now acting in Romeo and Juliet that you're directing, I've done that exercise. Yes. And it's just instantly helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I love that about the podcast. We also, of course, bring on um, experts every fourth episode mm-hmm. or so that may feel a little bit like a normal podcast <laughs> where you're interviewing people yeah but that's tool centric as well it's not about hey can you tell us you know how you got to where you got that's not what this is about mm-hmm. it's bringing someone on specifically as another tool so it really is useful yeah yeah that's what we set out to do yeah. we set out to create something useful and we're such doers as people. Yeah. It's a really American, um, not only American, but it's a pretty American phenomenon that like, no matter how much work I do, it'll never be enough. And and I want to tell the actors, I want to speak directly to the actors, the students, everyone right now, and say that you will never be able to do enough. The failure is inevitable and that takes the pressure off. And what this is so great for is when we still have that, that still, oh, I haven't done enough homework, oh, I haven't done that, instead of worrying about how you haven't done something, you just immediately have a next step. Like, like the whispering exercise is a next step. You don't have to worry, like, have I lived, have I spent enough time doing it? Do the whispering exercise. Like, have, have I done enough emotional homework, enough character building? Do the pointing exercise. It puts the energy, it puts the doubt somewhere else. So you don't have to hold on to it anymore. Yeah, yeah. And that's interesting because that brings us to initially when we created it, mm-hmm. it came out of the pandemic. We know there's been yeah. so many wonderful things that have come out of one of the most difficult things that the world has gone through. Mm-hmm. And I do consider this to be a wonderful thing that, that came out of the pandemic. Yeah. And it was that sense of isolation, mm-hmm. that that feeling of not feeling that you were doing enough yeah. and what should you be doing as an actor, you were suddenly... Yeah, what should the actor do? Like, that's always the question. Yeah, what's, what is what the actor What does a good actor do? Like... <laughs> exactly. And it came out of that. So when, when it came to me, Amanda, it was really thinking about workshops, suddenly being asked to do online workshops. Mm-hmm. And, and so I thought, oh, there's not a podcast that I can go to. There are some good... YouTubes, mm-hmm. you know, you can get a little peek into a voice class with the Royal Shakespeare yeah. Company. You can get little peeks into things that are again demonstrations, right? Of people doing these exercises. Exactly. But I was really longing for a podcast because 
I wanted to go running and learn. Yeah, yeah. I wanted because we're be, doers. We like want to. We yeah. want to listen while we do other things too. Exactly. I yeah. wanted to walk this new dog and learn. And you were the first person I thought of. <laughs> right of the hundreds of students, it was just you. I thought of you immediately, and the first word out of your mouth was yes. Mm -hmm. And then I think the second thing was, can Marissa join us? Yes, yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. And I want to talk about that, because mm -hmm. that brings us to a little bit of how we know each other. Mm -hmm. And, of course, I want to mention Jeremy. We've got this great intern, yeah. Jeremy Schinder. He joined on. He's been so helpful. He's mm -hmm. the one who really inspired this episode. Yeah. Right? So, again, it, it took us until we got here for another outside voice to say, here's what you guys need to do. So let's mm -hmm. quickly move through your story, my story, and talk a little bit about how you and I know each other. I think the first time I, I like cognitively recognized that I wanted to be a performer or be an actor, it was watching Kathy Rigby's Peter Pan on PBS. There's certain stories that just call to you, whether it was the way that like Kathy Rigby was moving, or as like the promise of, of eternal youth, I, I guess, or maybe both of those things. Something clicked for me when I was like, I think it was like three. And, and I was like, oh, I wanna, I wanna perform, I wanna do this. I wanna play, I wanna live my life play. Oh, I'm, gonna, I'm, already gonna, I'm already gonna get choked up about this, but I ended up meeting Kathy Rigby. Um, I saw her in Susicle that year when I was, when I was three and, and she gave me the baton during intermission and invited me up on the stage of this Broadway theater, I forget what theater it was, and asked me to wave the baton, and I waved it. And she was like, what's your name? And I was like, it's Amanda. And she was like, well, everyone, Amanda's just made her Broadway debut. Wow. And that's one of my first memories. <laughs> and I don't want to say, like, that moment going forward, I became an actor, because there are a million milestones along the way. But, but it was a world that I was a part of. It was the first community. Mm -hmm. A lot of it started with singing for me. Like I loved musical theater. And just like the memories of, I, I think any kid from New Jersey can relate to this, of like blasting musical theater in the car mm -hmm. with the windows rolled down and like singing in the Heights, singing to Seussical, singing to Wicked, being that like really annoying musical theater kid that went to summer camps and things. It was, it was the first time I was accepted. Acting as a kid felt like the first time that people were starting to see me for the first time, which is so ironic. I know many actors had this experience as well. It's like suddenly when I became a character, I felt more seen than like the masks that I put on as a, I, I like I'm from Hohokus, New Jersey. It's like a wonderful place. I had like the most spectacular childhood, but I never felt as much a part of the community as my peers did in middle school. I felt very much like an outsider, and I kind of operated with that mentality, and I still, still, still kind of operate with the outsider mentality, much to my own help and my own detriment. And I, being an actor, was for the first time that I felt like I was in the scene mm. instead of outside watching it. At like such an early age, I found this thing that was exciting, that made me feel whole. Do you think also because you were an only child? I think yeah, I think that too. Yeah, yeah. I think and I think about that very often. My imaginary friends, the worlds that I created for myself in my backyard, suddenly that could go somewhere, and it could meet a group of people. It could meet a cast, mm. and I think so much of what we do in our lives, like regardless of whatever profession we we take and whatever families 
we become a part of the families that we create so much of it is an effort to feel like a part of something bigger than yourself mm-hmm. and to feel like you have a role there and I think I think being an actor is like so on the nose it's so right on it's like I want to be a part of something and I want to have a role I want to I want to fit in here somewhere so this was all stuff that I was like grappling with when I was really really young and I ended up um where this is where this is where you come in I ended up applying for a high school that wasn't a traditional performing arts high school but it's uh it was a magnet school and um and there was a performing arts segment in it where we took our acting classes we had this really intense curriculum in addition to all the regular things high school students do and it, when I think about it in retrospect and how like my best friends in the world also came from that school and how much we've shared together, not only then, but through the course of our entire lives, it, it was just a crazy environment. I can't even describe it accurately to someone who hasn't been in it. Like I, I can't remember a time in which like the people from BCA weren't a part of my life, but I met you because you were my teacher and my mentor and and every everything for us for for those four years at at BCA and I learned how to act from you and I I'll I'll like put a put a bookmark on all of the BCA stuff because you'll talk about the the curriculum there as well but I ended up after BCA um, applying to Middlebury College which was such a different approach to theater and so helpful as well in that like there was so much more academic approach, theoretical approach to theater, less actually being in the room, but more like looking at the, the trends and movements of theater over time. And I, I ended up doing a directing track there, which was weirdly helpful to myself as an actor. I think acting is really helpful to directing and directing is really helpful to acting. And I'm sure you're experiencing that right now as well. Totally. Um, and at Middlebury, I like supplemented my education there with some, some conservatoire training at, at RADA. I went abroad for several months there with NYU, with a bunch of NYU students, and again, some of my lifelong friends. And that was just an unbelievable, I mean, London is my favorite city in the world. It was like an unbelievable experience to be in, in Shakespeare's homeland. I did Bada as well. I like, I like keep going back to England, like so long as they'll have me, I just, tear down the doors of every theater on the West End. Like, I just, I can't get enough of the London theater scene. Um, and so so going there was really firming as well, and it, I fell even deeper in love with Shakespeare during my time there. And um, then post my, my last year at Middlebury, I, I moved to New York, started just acting, doing more film. I started um, doing a bunch more, like, film work, and have gotten creative with projects in... A variety of ways. I work as a, as a photographer as well, and that's a whole other episode of just like how the process of framing and storytelling through photography and storytelling through images is so related to directing and is so related to acting on film. Mm-hmm. Like I just think they're so tied. But yeah, since graduation, I've just been I've been doing a bunch of projects. Essentially, I've been doing short films. I've been doing been acting in plays, and I'm right now currently directing um, a production of Romeo and Juliet, which uh, Victoria Pro is in, and you will be hearing much more of, about over the course of the podcast, I'm sure. But that's kind of the creative journey that I've been on. Do you want to start from the beginning as, as well, and then and then we find of where we've interacted? Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I think it's interesting. You said, you know, talk about BCA, and I, I'm not going to talk about BCA, yeah. because that's that's my day job. Yeah. <laughs> and it and it it's such a crazy most all consuming I know, like, 12 hours a day day job. 
developmental like yeah. vital role that you play in these like kids lives and you're like yeah like a dude during the day it's my day job <laughs> It, and it's a fantastic, it is a great day job. So my, my beginnings were very different from yours. Although your family had no theater. You can't no. remember, right, okay. Oh no, none at all. Yeah, no, my family. And, and what's so amazing, shout out to mom and dad always. Um, they, they, they were like, we birthed this, this kid who just loves theater. And they were like, I guess we love theater now. And now Aww. they're, you know, they're the biggest. They're, they, they've been to more Broadway shows than I have. They've been like from beginning to end, so unbelievably supportive in, in a thing that initially they just didn't understand, <laughs> and and they've come to, you know. Yeah. yeah, and it's complicated for families to navigate. Yeah, a child and going into the so arts. Well. They've, they've done been it so well. They've so supportive. So supportive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my Italian family <laughs> knew nothing about theater. You know, yeah. I mean, we grew up in the restaurant business, mm-hmm. and so I was a bus girl and a waitress. You know, but but was experiencing artistry at a very young age, whether I was sewing costumes or whatever I was doing. Mm-hmm. And the beginnings are just very typical of, <laughs> of being in plays. Yeah. You know, you get in that first one and then... Um, oh, it, this is kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then you get the leads in high school, so you actually think you can do it. Yeah, you know? yeah. Think, oh. And then somehow it, I was deciding between I was either going to be a visual artist or an actor... And my family didn't really understand how either of those things would work, you know. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, that made no sense. But, but they were they were super supportive. There was no mm-hmm. talk of like, oh, you need a fallback career, or whatever. Nobody mm-hmm. talked about that. They were great about it. And, and you know, did the auditions and ended up going to Northwestern. And I just want to say that now that I coach many many actors, whether it's private or in school, about how to uh, go through the audition process for. Uh, getting into college, mm-hmm. you know, the first thing that we tell the parents is it's nothing like when you were young. Yes. And I, I don't even know how I got into Northwestern. I don't know how I got into any of those schools because I got into like a ton of great schools. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember one of them I had to make a video and I decided I'd play Lady Macbeth. And there's a castle in Alpine. There's this really cool castle. And, and, and so in, in that, it was a VHS tape that we had to send in. And I got dressed as I thought she would. So you, know. you were doing site-specific theater yeah. and for your college audition. Oh no, no, it was Lady. It was it was Portia from Julius Caesar. Mm. And my brother Jack had to put in the line, "Kneel not, gentle Portia." And of course, you know we're like these Italians from New Jersey. So off camera, you hear in the middle of it, "Kneel not, gentle Portia." And my father had the headlights on from the car, and that's how we, the whole family was up at this castle. But anyway, got into school. It was great. Northwestern, blah, 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 loved it. Fantastic class with so many people who are now working in the business. Just a, a great experience. And senior year, back then in the 80s, because I'm 57, um, they did provide a little showcase. Mm. And nobody invited anybody from New York, but Chicago agents came. Mm-hmm. And I looked pretty much like I do now, except younger, <laughs> yeah. right? I had very, very short hair, and yes. I was just a small, kind of dark-skinned kid. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I, did, I don't even know where anybody would place me. I was a little bit like a Cheetah Rivera type mm-hmm. of that look. Uh, but these agents came, and I actually got some interest. Mm-hmm. And I went to see one of them, and she said, you know, oh, you've got a great look. It's different, but, you know, we can, we can get stuff for you. And I said to her, I saw a poster 
up up in the Norris Center, and it said something about Shakespeare in England. Do you think I could still, you know, work in commercials, but first go to England? Yeah, yeah. And study Shakespeare, and she said. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Go, yeah, go yeah, study. Yeah. Go study Shakespeare. I love England. how we both had that impulse of like, of like, hold, hold, hold. Can this all be on pause while I go to England to pursue Shakespeare? Yeah. 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 I just didn't understand anything, but I had studied under the great David Downs, and we had worked on the classics, and I knew that 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 was the most incredibly exciting thing I'd ever done. Whether it was the Greeks or Moliere or Ibsen, it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did that. I moved to England lived there for several years, got into Lambda, studied for a year, and learned and learned and soaked it all up, as so many Americans have that story. Mm -hmm. That's not a new story. Yeah, of course. You go and you just soak it up, and it's life-changing. Yeah. And then, when I came back as an actor, I also had nurtured those skills as an artist. Mm -hmm. So I was able to work doing props, doing sets. I was assisting set designers on Broadway. You're like the Wonder Woman of of multitasking. I I have a lot of those kind of, you know, craft skills, design skills. And so I was able to earn a living assisting designers, working with designers, but very much, you know, going to auditions and trying to figure it all out. Mm -hmm. And, And at one point I was assisting the great Richard Nash, just this wonderful writer and man of the theater. And I had come home from an audition where I was number 736. <laughs> it was for Bye Bye Birdie That's crazy. on Broadway, I and I got typed out. Now, I had no idea what typed out is. And, and listeners, if you don't know what that is, you, wa- you wait all day in an, in an audition holding room mm-hmm. with hundreds and hundreds of people, and then they bring in small groups. I think there were seven other women. Mm-hmm. And they look at you and they say, thank you, and they send you home because you're, don't, you're not the right type looking. Mm. Well, I'd never experienced that before, and I was such a young person, I was probably about 22, mm-hmm. and I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe I'd waited almost eight hours, and with all the hope of the naivete mm-hmm. of thinking, I'm going to get in this show, Yeah. because I was absolutely convinced I would. I mean, yeah. hell, I've been to England. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of, of course they're going to take me. Yeah. And, and I, I just walked in, and in 30 seconds they told me to go home mm-hmm. with all those other women. So. I walked into rehearsal with N. Richard Nash, and I was crying. And he said, why are you crying? And he was pretty old at that point. He was well into his 70s. And I told him the whole story, and he said, oh, you're not an actor. You're a director. I said, what? What makes you say that? I've been to England. I've studied Shakespeare. And he said, no, you're a director. You're not an actor. And that changed Why did he say that? You know what? We probably had to get to rehearsal. I probably had to build a prop. Who even knew? You know, yeah. but, but this elder... It was just an observation. Yeah, this elder gentleman of the theater said that, and I believed him, and he was right. And, and that's when I became a director. And I... My, an aunt... It's so crazy how just the seed had to be planted. And because yeah. the soil was already so fertile. You know, like, like that seed wouldn't have grown unless you were ready to direct right there and then. Yeah, totally. You just needed the okay. Yes. You just needed like some random, not random, like a great, great artist, okay, yeah. but like, but an out of the blue, okay, seed to drop, so you could go, okay, I've been, I've been ready. I know it's it is kind of crazy, but that's exactly how it happened. And an, an aunt had passed away, mm-hmm. and she'd never had children. She was a clothing designer in California. She had become quite well to do, and she left all the nieces and nephews ten thousand dollars. 
And so I suddenly came into $10,000. Now, I did not have money. Mm -hmm. I, I was working a million gigs happily. Mm -hmm. And I suddenly had this money. So I sent 40 letters out to all the regional theaters in the country. And there was no internet then. You know, I had to do that using little books of like lists of regional theaters yeah. and said, I can work with the artistic director for a year for free. And I got 39 letters back saying yes. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. One person did get back to me. You know, whether it was Merrimack or whatever theater company it is. Yes. They all yeah. said, okay, when are you coming? Yeah, what the hell? It was like a free person, you know. And I met the great Josie Abadie. And I fell hard. <laughs> and I went to the Cleveland Playhouse and assisted her. And that's when I began to think of myself as a director. Mm -hmm. Now, I still had no experience. Zero. But I was watching what they did. Yeah. And then I was recruited by Ohio University, by the wonderful George Sherman, and got my MFA. And got to go to the Guthrie, and got to go work at the National Theater in London, and got, you know, got to do all that. And it was really terrific. And... I had fallen in love with a guy from a couple blocks away, um, and I was pregnant by the last year of grad school, and I was heavily pregnant at the National Theater, assisting. And so Peter and I were, we all our friends were artists, and we were one of the youngest that actually was having a family. And I remember at one point, Maria Myleaf and who's a terrific director, Neil Patel's wife, um, and a couple other people were brought into Lincoln Center to do a workshop to talk about how you can have children and, ha and work in this business. Mm -hmm. Like it was so confusing so how you could possibly do both. that yeah. that they actually brought us in to, to talk about it. <laughs> how to. <laughs> yeah, and interestingly it was family that ended my time working professionally, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So things were going great to children I was working on and off Broadway consistently, whether I was producing, directing, even designing. It didn't matter. I mean, I was working yeah. in really cool gigs, starting to climb. You know, it was hard. I was doing pre-Broadway workshops, and I had been brought in to direct Stormy Weather, the Lena Horn story with Leslie Uggams, and it was mm -hmm. a fabulous gig. That whole team was incredible. And that led to the York and being hired to do a new musical called Prodigal at the York. Mm -hmm. And I had just had the third baby, the third unexpected baby. Mm -hmm. And it just broke me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, there was Isabella in my backpack, fussing during mm -hmm. tech meetings with two young children at home, a five-year-old and a six-year-old, and it, ju it just did me in. Yeah. I, I just couldn't pay for another assistant. Yeah. I just couldn't figure out how to do another daycare or crawl in the house at 1 a.m. after a tech that wouldn't end. And that cast was so exquisite. Christian Borle was in that, Carrie Butler. It was a great cast, and I just, I had to exit because I was literally falling apart. But at that moment, <laughs> this is a funny story. At that moment, I was also, I was coaching at home, and I got a phone call from this boy, Dean Lignos, and he was a local boy. I was living, I think I was in Closter, he was in Closter. Mm -hmm. And he said, I want to audition for a new performing arts program, okay, BCA, mm -hmm. Bergen County Academies, and can you help me with my audition? And I said, yes, come over. So this boy shows up, and uh, he's okay, you know, <laughs> he's, a, he's a cute boy. Dean, are you listening? <laughs> of course, of course he, he knows this story well. And he just didn't have any energy. I had to, I, I, <laughs> 
he had his monologue, and I, was, I, I made him go out and run, and I had my hands on his back. In those days, you could do that. Uh-huh. And I pushed him up three blocks while he was running. Cause he, <laughs> I know, all of the clearance run. you would need to get now, of like, like all of the papers yeah, exactly. that would need to be signed. Uh, but like, can I touch your child's back? And forcefully push him up a hill as he recites Richard. <laughs> exactly. So we did this, and sure enough, he gets in. Well, you know, there's probably like one boy that auditioned, whatever. He, yeah. he gets in the program. Yeah, he is brilliant and has devoted his life to the most extraordinary work, mm-hmm. um, exploring where Buddhism and, and all kinds of uh, philosophy intersects with acting methods. And oh, he's, hooking up with Dean. Why have we not met up with Dean yet? He's fascinating. He's, got- he's created his own philosophy. He's on to his PhD. I think he's at NYU. But anyway, he gets in the program. Now, I don't think about this kid for two seconds. You know, I'm, I'm off directing in New York. <laughs> and now we have email, okay? We're at the point where we have email. And he begins to send me long emails, microscopic, they were like .9 <laughs> typeface, telling me about this program. I have no interest in this program. I don't care about high schools. I don't want to know this. I, I have no interest in this kid, right? I am so busy with these three kids. And what's crazy, too, is like I could see you like going, because you're so responsive over email. Oh, I would like, actually long trying. emails Yes, back. of course, of course. Of course, long I'd respond to every sentence, every thought. I, yes, of course you did. Uh, I mean, I needed this like a hole in the head, and which just prompted him to tell me more. So he's telling me, oh, this incredible woman, Dr. Strum, she runs the program. Now I get an email that says they're looking for a teacher. Please come be our teacher. I said, absolutely not. And you really should stop emailing me. Well, he keeps emailing me. So I go in. <laughs> and I teach a sample class. It was exactly as I was doing Stormy Weather because she hired me on the spot. And I said to her, can I still do readings in New York? She said, we'll work it out. Mm-hmm. You know, this woman who hired me, this amazing woman. Day job. Right. <laughs> and that la- I, I managed to keep doing readings for about three more months. And yeah. BCA turned into 12 hours a day. Yeah. You know, where sometimes I would sleep with my cell phone in case you guys needed something. In the days when you actually could talk to a kid on a cell phone. Now, you know, we would never do that. But when I had to leave New York, I was upset for, it took me five to maybe, maybe five years to get over it. I was really sad. I really missed working with trained actors. Yeah. And then you guys started showing up. (laughs) And, and I began to realize that the experience was so rich and so rewarding and so deep Mm -hmm. and that you guys were a lot of you were going to go on and become those actors that I was working with. Mm-hmm. And it became really extraordinary. And when you and Marissa, mm-hmm. who's our producer, played Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, she was Macbeth and you were Lady Macbeth in our, we had a female Macbeth, you know, it was, it was the real thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we did, we did the work, it was the real thing. And that became incredibly rewarding. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I worked in the city for 15 years. I'm now in my 15th year of teaching. And of course, I had run all those Shakespeare camps and fashion camps. And yeah, it's like all of the additional things you do. Yeah, and like, yeah. like 80 other projects in addition yeah. to BCA. A few things. But and family. Like, of yeah. course, of course. It's such, a, it's such a rich, rewarding, exciting way to live. Mm-hmm. And um, yesterday was the last day of fashion camp for this year. Mm-hmm. And I announced that I'll never, there's no more camps. <gasps> because... It's now about coaching Shakespeare mm-hmm. and pursuing other projects because mm-hmm. I am so committed to this podcast yeah. and what it can lead to in sharing tools with people 
and yeah. and and we've been so blessed. And I'm just thinking right now, like what an opportunity is for you because like you've been doing these tools at BCA with us for 15 years, and now like getting the opportunity to share it with the world, like anyone can listen to this now. And of course, the tools that we're using are so much more than we do at BCA because. Mm people are gonna bring us tools. Yeah. That's what we're loving about yes. this, is we wanna build a community of people who want to share ways of working on the techs. We created this over the pandemic when we had time to listen to so many other podcasts. Mm -hmm. And we're gonna talk about those podcasts because again, it's about sharing. And we've learned so much. Yeah. But we think we're the only one out there doing live coaching. And, and we're so grateful to all the other podcasters who are taking apart Shakespeare's text for us. So we, we've talked a little bit about ourselves. We've talked about our hopes for the podcast and sharing with the community. We were very specific that we did not want to talk about ourselves in the podcast episodes. Things do come out about our past. Mm -hmm. We touch on it quickly, we move off it. That's not the goal. The goal is to create a community of people who are interested in approaching the work from as many different ways as possible in order to enable you to know what to do, how to do it, anywhere, anytime. Again, to reference our really smart intern, Jeremy, who said, where do you do these things? What does the room look like? What's the space? And then you said, anywhere. That's what it's about because all you ever have as the actor is yourself. And that's what you train, and that's what you bring. So today, we were rehearsing the production of Romeo and Juliet that you're directing on playing the friar. I haven't acted in 30 years. It's hard, it's frightening. <laughs> I don't know how to do it anymore, I'm learning. But we were in Stuyvesant Park, mm -hmm. and then we're gonna be in Jerry's apartment, <laughs> yeah. and then we're gonna be someplace else. Mm -hmm. And by God, the only thing you can bring is everything. It's nothing and everything. And where do you even begin to develop everything? You need tools. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're doing. So we welcome you to this endeavor. We are going to get things wrong. Mm -hmm. We're going to say things that are incorrect. Find us on the website. Email us. Tell us. Give us suggestions. Give us corrections. Share your tools. This is a safe loving place that's not about being smarty pants <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it's just about sharing ways in and so thank you for becoming a part of this community and we hope you love the episodes thank you so much Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to Coaching Shakespeare. I'm Marissa, the podcast producer and editor. Shout out to the amazing team who helped Victoria, Amanda, and me bring this podcast to life. Jeremy Schinder, our intern, Rachel Miller, and Nora Slonim, our graphic artists, and Nina Oso, our music composer. If you like the episode, we would love for you to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're streaming. And better yet, tell your friends, classmates, teachers, or colleagues to check out the show. It goes a long way in helping us reach any future listeners. If you really like the episode, you can also subscribe to us on Patreon and get some great perks in exchange for a monthly donation. We also want you to reach out with any of your questions, corrections, or suggestions for the show. 
To provide that feedback or to inquire about masterclasses or online coaching sessions, visit coachingshakespeare.com and fill out our contact form. In the meantime, we'll exit pursued by a bear.